Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Let's pretend that you just pick up a letter, right? A letter that was written from some one person to another person. You don't have any context of what the letter is. You have no idea what, who the people really even are. And you just have this letter and you read it. Well, you could come to some, some conclusions. You could come to some um, understanding about the writer and about the reader, and who, who, you know, who was addressed to. Uh, but it's very difficult to understand the full context just because of that one single letter. But if there was another document um, that gave a better background of what was going on between uh, in the in the in the society of that day or in the culture of that day in the in the community where they lived, and then you could use that other document to uh, help better interpret, help better understand the original letter, then that can help paint some color into this maybe black and white sort of uh, letter that you have in front of you. And that's what I'm trying to get us to see. The letter written from Paul to to the Romans is a fantastic, fabulous letter in and of itself. But fortunately, we have other documents, other letters like the book of Acts, the letter of Acts that was written that gives us an amazing historical context and overview of what was going on in the Christian church, in Christendom, in Christianity, from the time in which Jesus ascended all the way through when t- the time when Paul went to Rome for the final time, ultimately probably to stand trial and be you know killed or however that ended. It, it doesn't really say exactly how that ended. The letter ends before that. And so there's this probably, I don't know, 30-ish somewhat year of history that the book of Acts helps us uh, understand from a almost like a commentary sort of perspective. And so there is great tension occurring between uh, in two factions, two groups. I call it two camps in Christianity. There's the camp that says Jesus plus nothing else. It's not, it's not Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus um, commitment to, you know, traditions. It's just Jesus plus nothing else. And then there's other another camp that says salvation is Jesus, yes, but it's also Jesus plus becoming a Jew, Jesus plus joining the nation of Israel. And so there are these two camps, and they were the, the, the camp that said Jesus plus joining the nation of Israel was you know, they, they had some reason, some rationale for that. If you think about it, all of the promises uh, of the Old Testament were to the Jewish people. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. They were all of the same bloodline. And Jacob, of course, being the one who officially began the Jewish people. 
um, God's rescuing of the Israelites from Egypt, the giving of the law, the covenants, um, all of these promises, the, the land, etc. all of it was to the Jewish people. And so these Jewish Christians in this camp over here, they say, well, this Jesus thing is, is not a total removal of all of these promises. It's an addendum. It's an addition. And so, yes, you have to have faith in Jesus, of course, um, to be born again. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. So there's faith, but you have to be a part of our ethnic group. Namely, you have to become a Jew if you're a Gentile and you have to commit yourself, therefore, to the Jewish law. And the ultimate you know, expression of that, if you're a Gentile male, is you, the willingness to follow through with um, circumcision, cutting off the foreskin so that you could become an actual Jew, so that you could actually inherit the promises. Because the promises, yes, it's Jesus, but it's through the nation of Israel. And the other camp, the camp Paul is certainly a part of, uh, and I would say the camp Jesus is a part of, is a camp of, yes, the nation of Israel was uh, chosen, special people, but chosen for something very specific, chosen for a reason. And what was that reason? And that reason was so that the name of the Lord God, Jehovah, Yahweh, would be exposed to the entire world so that when the fullness of time came, God would raise up a whole new creature, a whole new creation, a whole new ethnos, a whole new people, not to convert new Gentiles into Judaism, but to create a whole new people, a whole new creation, sons and daughters of the Most High where there's now neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free, but one in Christ. And so there was a great deception. There's a great di division in the body of Christ. We can read about this in Acts 15. I think even in Acts 12, we read about this in Galatians. There's great tension between these two camps in the body of Christ, where one is saying, yes, of course it's Jesus, but you've got to become a Jew. You've got to do these things in order to be proven yourself faithful and, and a part of the kingdom. Whereas the other is, no, this kingdom, this flesh, this earthly stuff is all for a purpose. The, the selection of the Jew was for a reason greater than ethnicity, greater than physicality. It was greater. And so... Uh, now let's discover what's what that greater is, a whole new man, a whole new cre uh, creature in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the, all things become new. And so Paul, his mission and his gospel, his missionary journeys, you know, that he takes is to take this message to the Gentiles. And he always had competition from this other camp. They were called Judaizers. They were called the men from James. They're called, you know, the people from Jerusalem and different places. They will always try to come back and say, well, no, Jesus is what you need, but you also need Jesus plus becoming a Jew. Because remember, all this was for the Jews. And so you got to become ethnically a Jew. And it was just a blindness. They didn't understand it. I don't know if they were just being malicious um, or not. I don't know. It was just, it was certainly a blindness. And so Paul's whole point of writing the letter to Romans is, is, Romans is saying, here's what we maintain. We maintain that a man is made just by faith apart from the works of the law. It's not about becoming a Jew. It's about depending upon God, depending upon him for taking away your sins, depending upon him for taking you through death, the death of Christ 
and raising you a whole new creation. And so he answers a lot of questions like, well, why then the law? Why then did God give the law? And he answers that in five, six, seven. He says in chapters five, six, and seven, ultimately that the law teaches that we all have sin and that we're so far from God that we need to depend upon God. And so God gave the Israelites the law to show the whole world the great need of rescue from sin because sin came alive as Paul in his testimony in chapter seven, uh, as, as sin, as he became, as he was placed under the law. And so who can rescue us from this? And it's only Jesus. And so now in chapter eight, he says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for what the law could not do weak as it was. God did. The law could not rescue us. That was not the point of the law. The point of the law was to condemn. It was to raise up sin, to increase sinnings, to bring about an awareness of sins, about an awareness of incomplete um, uh, righteousness, not to create righteousness. And so now that the law has done its job, we turn from the law to Christ. And so this is what we talked about a lot last couple of weeks, that now that we're in Christ, where do we turn? Where do we go? Where do we look to? Are we to be law-led believers or uh, law-based believers or led-based believers? And Paul makes that really clear in chapter eight. He says that the law cannot lead us. The law only leads us into the revelation of sin and the revelation of uh, of, of sin in the flesh, etc. But the but but now that we are in the spirit, we don't set our minds to the flesh. We set our minds on the, on Christ who is now in us and we allow him to live through us. So in a nutshell, here's the two camps. Both want behavior change. Both desire behavior change. Both even expect behaviors to change. But when it comes down to the true heart of the father, the true reality of what he's done for you and in you, and now you understanding who you are. You are a son. You are a son of God. Are you, are you a son striving to earn your place in the family? Or are you a son who has been placed as a son according to the grace of God? And now you are living in absolute dependency upon him. He's your, your daddy. And you depend on him for every move you make here and now. You see, Paul is saying one of this perspective is, is life and peace, realizing what God has done and placed you as his son. The other is death, where you're trying to earn your sonship. You're trying to deserve it. You're trying to work for it. One is life and peace, and the other is death. And so he gets into, at the end of chapter 8, this beautiful just um, expose, if you will, on how how creation itself is moaning and groaning for this new life that's within us as believers to burst forth from us. Creation is moaning and groaning. Creation is wanting to see this great revelation of the new heart, the new you to come forth. And then he says, and we groan and moan for it too. We moan that, that the heart that is now new in us, that Romans 6 says that we now have the obedient heart that we long for, that we now have that. We are moaning for, and we do when we sin, when we mess up, when we screw up, we're like, God, I know better. How could I have done that? You know, so forth. But then he says at the end of chapter eight, that the Holy Spirit moans and groans, not for what is in us to come out, 
But here's what I see it as. The Holy Spirit moans and groans from what is in us to come out. Meaning he sees already the truth. The Holy Spirit, God himself already in us sees and knows the truth. And the scripture says that that he is um, uh, making an appeal, I believe, to our unredeemed minds saying, look at who you are, see who you are, so that the life of Christ within is on display through us, not by effort, not by work, but by revelation and the Holy Spirit revealing it through an, uh, making an appeal to the flesh, to the mind. And, and ultimately, Paul says that this, this issue of the body becoming, as, 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 uh, as he says, conformed into the likeness of Christ, the body being as righteous as the new heart, Paul says, ultimately, this is God's predestined plan from the beginning of time. The predestined plan of God was the conformity of your outer man into the very perfection of Christ himself. Your heart is already there. It's already a done deal. But the not yet is the outer man. And so he says it's a predestined plan. It's going to happen. And it's not going to happen by law-based living, but it's going to happen by lead-based living, by being led by his spirit, by being independent, growing independent, dependency upon him. And then Paul just ends with this beautiful crescendo, and I'm going to read it. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, I mean, it's predestined, it's predestined that your outer man is going to become like the inner man, perfect and righteous and holy and sinless. Ultimately, of course, at death, but by degree, as we are led by his spirit, what shall we say? If God is for us, then who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered it all for us, how will he not with him in all things freely give us all things. I mean, in other words, is he just going to stop giving us a new heart? No, he's going to give us a new body as well. One day when, when this body ends. And so we don't need to turn from dependency upon the Lord for a new heart to now dependency upon the laws and rules and regulations for a new flesh. We, we, we continue the way we got started by dependence, depending on him. Do we jump ship now? We got started by faith. Are we going to jump ship to something else like law-based living? No, we continue. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It's not God. Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who raised, who was raised from the dead. And, and Paul points this out to say, hey, you've died and you've been raised your heart, but you also will be raised in body as well one day. So if you believe it happened to Jesus, believe it's going to happen to you in the body, not by being law-based in your living, but by being led-based in your living. Who, Jesus, is at the right hand of God who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ. Well, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Is anything in this world going to be able to keep us from this predestined plan of God, of our bodies falling off and dying, these sin-stained, sin-quarantined to the flesh, these bodies falling? Is anything going to separate us, stop that from happening? But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conqueror through him who loved us. We are conquerors. It's a done deal. It's a predestined plan of God. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So that's how he ended chapter eight last week. 
All this is a predestined plan of God for your outer body, your outer flesh to come into conformity with the very image of Christ. Your inner man already is. Your inner self, your inner man, it's already died and been raised anew. But so shall the outer man. And it's not going to be by law-based living, but by being led by him. And ultimately, it's his promise. Nothing's going to separate us from it. Now, we're going to move into chapter 9. And chapter 9 doesn't change the subject. The whole premise of the whole letter is there's these two camps. One camp says we've got to get Gentiles to not only trust Christ, but also, also to live by law. But Paul is defending the true gospel, saying, no, it's not about becoming a law-based Christian. It's about being a led-based Christian. It's about dependency upon him and, and living by his life within. And so I'm going to actually start chapter 9 at the very end. It's going to take at least two weeks to cover chapter 9. But I want to start chapter 9 at the very end in verse 30. Because if, if we don't know where Paul is going, then it, we can come up with some very strange conclusions as we're walking through the first part of chapter 9. So I'm going to read the conclusion so that we know where Paul's going, what his ultimate context, what his ultimate point is, and then we'll go back to chapter 1 and read through it pretty quickly. So read with me chapter 9, verse 30 through 33. What shall we say then? So here's his ultimate conclusion of chapter 9. Now, we don't know what chapter 9 is about yet. We haven't read it. We're going to. But here's his conclusion about chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, and I have that in red in my notes, if we were in the meeting room, it'd be up on the screen in red, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness that is by faith. Here's the conclusion. Gentiles who did not strive for it, did not work for it, did not earn it. They achieved it by faith. But Israel, the Jews, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, it, as if it were by works. So here's the conclusion. The Gentiles have stumbled upon faith, righteousness, because it came by faith and they believed. But the Jew refused, generally speaking, the Jews have refused to embrace the truth because it comes by faith and not by works. And they've been set up to think that it's all by works. They've been deceived by the law, even that well, sin has deceived them, not the law, but they've been deceived by sin in the flesh that if they just did the law, they would be righteous. And that's not how it works. They stumbled. The Jew stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. And Paul quotes the old Testament. Behold, I lay in Zion, that's Israel, that's Jerusalem, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And so what is the stumbling stone? We could say, who is the stumbling stone? Obviously it's Jesus, but see, there's a, the stumbling stone. I don't want to say it isn't just Jesus, but it's what you do with Jesus. Okay. He says, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The stumbling stone is, is specifically, as I would communicate it, is faith in Jesus. 
that's the stumbling stone laid in Jerusalem. And the Jews are tripping over the stumbling stone. They can't, they can't take that step over it. They're falling. They are continuing the thought in themselves that they are by birth from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by uh, having been given the law, by having been given these promises, that they by their mere heredity uh, are sons and daughters of God with no questions asked because they have the law and they're doing their best to do the law. And so they are okay with God by their physicality, by who they are physically. And so faith in Jesus is the stumbling stone. The faith in the, the stumbling stone is like, it, it's like, it, it can't be that simple. I have to bring something to the table. I have to demonstrate. I have to prove. But this is the clear conclusion. It's about Gentiles and Jews. Gentiles who who came in by faith, came into righteousness by faith, and Jews who did not come into righteousness because they thought they could do it on their own accord of their own works. So the Jews, the great irony in this whole thing is that the Jews who were the pre-selected people of God are the ones who are actually excluded from the promises because they did not mix, they did not add to their to their physicality of being a Jew. They did not add faith to it. They did not trust it. So Gentiles getting in by faith with no commitment, no obligation, Paul just said in chapter eight, to the law. And this is this is a, such a shift in understanding for the Jew that they just can't wrap their mind around it. So they're stumbling over this thing of faith. Remember, Paul says, we maintain that a man is made just by faith, apart from, separate from any works of the law, which was not the shared understanding of salvation by the Jewish church at large. So, just that we're all on the same page, I wanted to go to the end of the chapter before we go to the beginning. So the conclusion is, here's the conclusion. Gentiles have discovered righteousness because they, they got it by faith. The Jews, in general have not discovered righteousness because they think it comes by works and not by faith alone. So now let's go back That's the conclusion. So now we go back to chapter nine, verse one, and walk through the letter to see what it is that builds to that conclusion. So this is Paul, verse one, chapter nine, verse one. I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish, or I could pray, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He emphasizes flesh. I have it in red. If we were meeting, it'd be in red upon the screen. Verse 4, who are Israelites? According to the flesh, Israel, descendants of Jacob, etc., who belong to whom belong the adoptions as sons. Why does it belong to them? Because it was promised to them. And also belongs to them the glory and the covenants, the old and the new. Remember that. The old and the new covenants were promised to Israel. In Jeremiah 31, it says to the house of Israel, uh, to the house of Jacob, I, I say, 
And then he talks about the new covenant is to the Israelites is who the covenant, even the new covenant was specifically addressed to and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises that you'll be great and have a great, you know, the promised land and, you know, all this stuff, those who bless you, I'll bless those who curse you, I'll curse. All of these promises were given specifically to the nation of Israel. Verse five, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? That's in red as well. Who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. So can you experience Paul's passion for his fellow Jews here? I mean, can you feel the anguish of his words over the fact that he sees something that his fellow Israelite just simply doesn't see, and he longs for them to see what he actually sees. He says, kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says, Christ, according to the flesh. Paul is about to make some earth-shattering distinctions between flesh and spirit in a minute in the verses following. But he's he's sympathizing. He's he's um, showing his desire for his fellow Jews, again, of his his same nationality, the Jews, to come to where he is in this understanding of Jesus plus nothing. I wish, I would pray that I even be cut off from Christ and they be able to come in. Not that they're not able, but they're just not able, not willing to see. So remember, this is big. It was to the Jew that God, who God chose to make his known, his name made known among the world. It was the Jew who was promised sonship. It was the Jews who both have, who both have the first and the second covenants commissioned to them. It was to the Jews that the great Mosaic law was given. It was the great, the great temple uh, in Jerusalem was sanctioned. It was for the Jew in order, if, in fact, if you were not Jew, you could only go so far into the temple. It was the great promises of the Old Testament given to the Jewish people. The great fathers of the Old Testament were all of the same bloodline. And even the rescuer himself, the Messiah, the anointed one, God himself would come and enter this world according to the flesh of a Jew. So Paul is saying, look, guys, you have the, you have it all in your court. You have, you have the distinction of all other, amongst all other people groups, the small little minuscule people groups, the Jews in comparison to the great vast numbers of, of humanity. You are the ones that God chose. You are the ones that were, were promised all these things. This is not small potatoes. I mean, of all the people groups, this one small people group have been given great clout by God Almighty. And Paul, you hear his, he says, unceasing uh, anguish, grief, this sorrow in his heart that his fellow countrymen are not seeing the bigger picture of what's going on. His heart hurts. But the question that I have is why not? Why were they not seeing? Why, why did not all of the Israel come to the same faith that Paul came to, that many of the apostles came to, that many Jews came to, but not all. So many rejected and rejected vehemently the claims of Christ. And even in the church, many, this is the two camps, many rejected the Jesus plus 
plus nothing, Jesus alone ideas of Paul and embraced a Jesus plus becoming a Jew. Because again, and this is a big point to emphasize, all these promises, all this that Paul just said in, in verses one through, what is it, five, all this is to the Jew. The, far, the fathers, Jewish. The promises, Jewish. The covenants, Jewish. The law, Jewish. The, the temple, Jewish. is all Jewish. And so the thinking of the Christian Jews in Jerusalem in particular is, yes, you must believe in Jesus, but all this is for ethnic Israel. You have to become a Jew in order to truly receive it. And perhaps they have some rationale to believe that. So why did they not see what Paul saw? Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God failed. In other words, the word of God promised all these things to the Jews, but the Jews are not getting it. And Paul's saying, it is not because the word of God failed. Now listen to this. For, F-O-R, they are not all Israel who are descendants, descended from Israel. Let's read that again. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So Paul's about to open up a, 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 a huge misunderstanding, perhaps in the church in Jerusalem, but certainly amongst the people of, of, of Israel, of the, uh, the Jewish faith, that just because you are physically descended from Israel, and that's a man, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, that does not mean that you are all of Israel. Verse 7, what do you mean, Paul? Nor are they all children, children of God, because they are Abraham's descendants. What? You mean you could be a descendant of Abraham and not be a part of the, be a child of God? But, and he quotes Genesis, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. And he quotes Genesis again. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about? We've got to take a quick time out and go back to Genesis chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and see what's going on. And very quickly, because we're already running out of time, is God made a promise to Abram to saying that you will have a son. Abram is super old. He's in his 90s at this point. And he says, you'll have a son. He and Sarah are laughing because they're so old. They're beyond the age of, of a, having, having kids. And in fact, Sarah's womb is defined as being uh, described as being dead. She, her womb is dead. She's barren. She's not able to have kids. And so God promises that you're going to have a kid. So they took ma matters into their own hands and Sarah said, hey, here, I'm going to give Hagar to you as my wife. Hagar was a slave. She was a bondwoman. She was the slave of Sarah. And she said she was young and fertile and she can work. So I'm going to give you to, to give you as her as, as, as your wife, give her to you as your wife. And you'll have this will bring about God's promise. So Abraham slept, married and slept with Hagar. And there was a life that came from it. And that life was Ishmael. And God comes back and he says, 
the messenger comes back and says, no, this is not how I said it would be. It was through Sarah. The promise is through Sarah, through a dead womb, you will have a son. To which they laughed again, because it's impossible. How can this happen where a, a uh, child could come from a dead womb? Well, the scripture does say that Abraham believed and was credited as God for righteousness. And he believed back in chapter 12 before he was even circumcised. And we don't have time to get into the picture of circumcision right here, but it's really, really awesome. But um, Hagar and Ishmael were not the promised descendant, the promised child that God had promised. The promise would come through Sarah. So all of the descendants of Abraham are not, are not a part of the quote, true Israel. It's only those who are a part of the promise. And Galatians chapter four explains this in greater detail where Paul very directly says, Sarah and Hagar are an allegory. Sarah is a picture of freedom in Christ. Jerusalem above is our mother for freedom. Sarah, uh, Hagar is a picture of Sinai, the law, the covenants. And if you think that in your flesh, you can bring about God's promise, I'm going to reject that every time, just like he rejected Ishmael. But when you realize that you cannot bring about my promise and you just trust, depend, as Abraham continued to sleep with his wife, Sarah, God brought about a miraculous life out of a dead womb just like he does in salvation. He brings about a new life where there was a dead heart. And so Paul is making this connection that, look, guys, this thing has not been, has never been about just physical descendancy from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It has been about a promise and whether or not you believe the promise. So Hagar and Ishmael, according to Galatians 4, represent uh the law and the works of the flesh. And Paul says, as cast them out, remove them, throw them away. The law and the works of the flesh, throw them out. For we are sons and daughters of Jerusalem above. Sarah, a picture of. She is our mother. The promises of God are what brings about life within. And so Paul is referencing this. He's explaining to them, like, guys, this is not just about physical descendancy. Remember, our two camps, the, the one camp is trying to get all the Gentiles who are believing in Jesus to also become Jews so that they could be included in the physical descendancy of Abraham, of, of Isaac, and of Jacob. But Paul is saying, guys, that was never the point at all. The point was, if those who believe in the promise, those are the true sons and daughters of God. And so, verse 10, and not only this, there's more examples in the Old Testament. There was also Rebekah. Okay, so Rebekah was the wife of Jacob. I mean, of Isaac. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, but so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of one whom he calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, who was the younger, but Esau I hated. So what did, when God said the older shall serve the younger, 
because in their culture that's totally backwards the younger should serve the older but in but when god said the older shall serve the younger what had jacob done the younger what had jacob done to be blessed by god over esau what had he done not a thing because he wasn't even born yet that's paul's point paul's point in bringing up jacob and isaac and the blessing of the younger over the older is God made that choice of blessing the younger over the older before they did anything to deserve the blessing. Conversely, what did Esau do to be subject to his younger brother? He hadn't done anything wrong, good or bad, because he hadn't even born yet. And God said that that was the way it was going to be. So here's the point Paul is making. Grace and favor from God has never been and never will be based upon merit. God's blessing will never be based upon merit. Why? Because you can never earn it. That's what the law proves. You can never deserve his grace. The only way for you to experience any sort of grace is for him to be the giver of the grace and not for you to have earned it or deserved it in any sort of way. And so he uses Abraham. To, to explain, look, this has never even been about physical descendancy alone. Even though my flesh is Israel, Paul says, the, the Messiah, all the promises were made to them. It's not just about being physically descended. It's about being a part of this promise. And the promise comes about by faith, by trusting him. And he even gives this example of the twins, Jacob and Esau. They hadn't even been born yet, and God had already said one will serve the other. There was a decision made before they were even born. Why is Paul explaining all this? Because the general attitude of the Jew, even of the Christian Jews, towards the Gentiles was, who are they to receive the promises of God? You're telling me that they're going to receive the promises that were were for us, the Jew, just by believing, just by faith? That's the stumbling stone. What have they ever done for God? Who's their daddy? They're nothing but uncircumcised heathens. I mean, that's what that's what David called Goliath, you uncircumcised Philistines. That's all they are. They have no reason. They weren't chosen. They weren't, they weren't a part of this. Their fathers and their fathers before them, they were wicked, evil, insolent God haters. Our fathers are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whom God clearly loved. And since God loved them, well, we came from them. And so God loves us because of our heritage, because of our descendancy. And I hear Paul's explanation to them being, look, tell me what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. Tell me what they did to get God to love them. Jacob wasn't even born yet when God chose to love him, to bless him over Esau. Isaac was the odd product of a couple of geriatric patients. Abraham was minding his own business in his father's country, and God simply showed up one day and told him to move. What did any of them do to get God's favor, to get God's blessing, to get God's love? There's only one thing that any of the three of them ever did to be credited as right with God. One thing. Abraham believed God. He believed the promise and was credited as righteous. That's it. Faith. That's all it ever was. And so Paul is using these Old Testament examples to prove, demonstrate to his contemporary uh, 
Gentile, in this case, uh, believers, but then conversely to his contemporary uh, uh, Christian Jews who are trying to convert them to Judaism to get them really in to the body of Christ. He's, he explained this has never been about physical descendancy. This, is, this has never even been about the law. I mean, go ask Jacob. Go ask Jacob. Hey, Jacob, how's that law keeping going? Jacob would be like, what law? Because Jacob was born and blessed by God, the younger being served by the older, generations before the law. Ask Isaac, hey, how's that law keeping going? Hey, Abraham, you doing good with the Ten Commandments? What Ten Commandments? It's all existed before that. Galatians very clearly says the law came in from Moses, Mount Sinai, until the promised one for this explicit purpose, an explicit purpose to reveal the great need for a rescuer. So belief, faith, that's it. No, no acts of righteousness, no law to keep, just faith to have. That's Paul's point. It's always been faith. What shall we say then? Verse 14. There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. There's no injustice with God. For he says to Moses, I will have compassion or mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, here's the conclusion of that statement. Like, what do you mean by that? What's the point, Paul? Verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Who is it in this context? In this context, remember, we read the conclusion. The Jew, the Gentile came to faith, righteousness, because of faith, the Jew did not come to righteousness because he thought that he could earn it by law keeping. Who in this context is the one who was, who was willing, like trying? Who is it that's running to achieve the righteousness? Is it the Jew or is it the, the Gentile? Well, in this context, it's the Jew. It's the Jew trying to will it to be. I'm willing it to happen. I'm running for it to happen. I'm wanting, I'm working towards righteousness, to achieve righteousness by my works. So Paul's saying it has nothing to do, because God says, I have compassion, whom I have compassion. So it has nothing to do with the man who wills, the man who runs for it, but upon God who has the mercy. So who is it then, who is the willer and the, 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 the runner for, for righteousness? It's the Jew. He says it has nothing to do with being Jew. That's Paul's point. Has nothing to do with why are you converting? Why are you trying to Christian Jews in Jerusalem? Why, why in the world are you trying to convert people to become a Jew after they believed in Christ when it never had to do anything with willing for and striving for and running for righteousness? It was always a gift. Who is it, likewise, in this context that's, that is simply the undeserving recipient of God's mercy? It, it's the Gentiles. Because of what? Because they are converting to Judaism? Because they are cutting off foreskins? No. It's because God made a choice long ago to have mercy on them, even though no one knew about it. And I'm going to say, or did they? Because not today, but in a couple of uh, uh, teachings from now, Paul actually explains, this is not really a mystery, 
Paul, God told, I think it's going to be even next week. God told Moses about this. God told uh, Hosea. He, he lists a couple of people. Like God, God's been talking about this whole time. You've just not been listening. I'm going to call people who are not my people, my people. You, you, you guys are just not listening. This has been communicated by God from the beginning that, that his choice was to have union with man, not just Jew and Gentile, but the Jews were chosen for a purpose to make his name made known amongst the entire world. But the goal was for his name to be known amongst the world, Jew, Gentile alike, not just simply the Jew. Now, verse 17 and 18 are very cool. But my goodness, if we don't see verse 17 and 18 in the context of the entire book, and at least in the entire chapter of verse chapter 9, and especially the conclusion that we read, verse 30, then we're going to, we can come to all sorts of horrific conclusions just reading this out of context. And so he explains, for the scripture says, he just said, it's not about the man who wills or, or runs, but God who has mercy. For, F-O-R, the scripture says to Pharaoh. So now he's going back to uh, Exodus. He's going back to the time when the Jews were in slavery to Egypt. And he says, the scripture, F-O-R, he's explaining what he just meant. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I raised you up, Pharaoh, to demonstrate my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, verse 18, he, God, has mercy on whom he desires and hardens whom he desires. Who is Paul comparing Pharaoh to? In this context, and in the discussion time, we can discuss who other people out of this context, I don't want to get into that right now, would compare Pharaoh to. But in context of this passage, chapter 9, who is Paul comparing Pharaoh to? Who, who did God use to raise, who did God raise up between the Jew and the Gentile? That's the, that's the, the two people groups that, in this discussion now. Which people group did God raise up to demonstrate his power in them so that his name might be proclaimed throughout the entire earth? The Jew or the Gentile? The Jew, the Jews. Now, follow me for a minute, because this is, this is big. How many friends do you think Paul made with this comparison? How many Jewish buddies do you think Paul added to his Jewish Facebook friends list by this comparison? Paul is saying that just as God raised up Pharaoh, to make a name for himself around the world, God has also raised up the Jewish people to make a name for himself around the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I would assume, and I think accurately, that the Jews were not too happy with Paul hearing him compare them to Pharaoh, the one who enslaved their forefathers in Egypt, murdering many of them and treating them horribly as if they were scum of the earth. And Paul's comparing Pharaoh to the Jews. What's Paul's point? What's Paul's point? God had a plan from before the beginning of time to be in union with man. This union with man would only come 
via dependency upon God. And throughout history, God has demonstrated how this works. He demonstrated it with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and he even demonstrated it with Pharaoh. Without God raising up Pharaoh to hate and pursue the Jews as slaves, God would not have been seen around the world as the rescuer he was. If there were no Pharaoh that God raised up, then we would not know about the rescue of the Jews from Egypt. We would not know of God's heart to free people from slavery. We would not know of, of his uh, miraculous and, and divine desire to pull a people out of slavery. We wouldn't know about that if there wasn't a Pharaoh. And so God's, Paul's point is there have been times all throughout history where God raised up people, even hardened them, if we want to use that phrase, to reveal his, God's great attributes, great kindness and great favor and great love and great rescue of people. Likewise, if God had not laid this stumbling stone of faith in front of the Jews, then the gospel likely would not have left Jerusalem. Remember, it was due to great persecution of the Christians that the gospel ended up leaving the, that area and being spread to other areas around the Mediterranean world. Now, this is where we're going to pause for today because we're out of time and we're going to pick up in verse 19 next week. Why is this so important? What is the ultimate point that Paul is proving here? There was such amongst the Jews and amongst the Jewish Christians, there was such a nationalistic um, uh, commitment that they were corrupting the gospel, the true gospel, to say that in order to truly be a follower of Jesus, you must also be a follower of Moses, a follower of laws and rules and commandments and an Israelite. Because all this was for Israel, and if you're not an Israelite, then it can't be truly for you. Which again, I can see them building that case or trying to build that case, but the truth is so much better. And Paul is arguing for the truth that no, First of all, this was never even promised to the descendants, physical descendants of Abraham. It was, it, there was a promise that he explains in detail in Galatians 4, that there's an allegory between Sarah and Hagar, which is the, the spirit, Jerusalem above, and the law, it is uh, um, Sinai below. And we're not sons of the bondwoman. We're slaves of the free woman. Jerusalem above is our mother. That's the true uh, context, the true picture, the true reason for the, the recipients of the promise. It's not just being descendants. It's about believing. It's about faith. And then he brings up Jacob and Esau. They hadn't done a diddly squat. They weren't even born. And God promised the younger would serve the older. That's, that was his choice in doing so. And he even uses 
Pharaoh as an example. Says, just as God raised up Pharaoh to make his name great, he has raised up the Jewish nation, blessing them above all nations, protecting them, guiding them, rescuing them from their own sin and stupidity, the battle of Jericho, David and Goliath, I mean, Daniel and the lion's den, I mean, you name it. And God chose to raise this one people group up for the purpose of his name being made known amongst the entire world, the nations. And so the purpose of the Jew is not, of Judaism, of, of being a Jew, of the Jewish nation is not just being born in, physically into heritage with God. So uh, God choosing a people group to raise up so that his name would be made known amongst the world. And true sonship comes as it always has by faith. So remember, we've got these two basic camps. You have the Paul camp, I say the Jesus camp, which is Jesus plus nothing. It is faith and dependency upon God. Faith in order to get into the Christian life, and it's faith that continues, and daily faith that maintains, and daily faith that, that, that manifests Christ in you through you to the world. It's Jesus plus nothing. And the other camp that says, of course it's Jesus because, you know, he forgave, forgave our sins, but all this is for the Jewish nation. And so in order to be a true Christian, you've got to become a true Jew. And I hear Paul saying that being Israel, according to the flesh, either by being born into Israel or a Gentile converting into Judaism, it means absolutely nothing when it comes to God. Absolutely nothing. The physical descendants from Jacob were not the focus. It has always been about those who came from the promise. And what did Abraham have to do to receive this promise? He had to believe it. He had to have faith. He had to depend upon God to make it happen. He tried even using his flesh to make it happen. And what did God do to that piece of flesh that Abraham used to try to make it happen? Cut it off. Circumcision. He said, if you're going to try to rely upon your flesh to bring about my promise, I'm going to cut that piece of flesh off. Circumcision. And that was a sign of circumcision that the entire Israelite people group to this very day observe. And they don't even know why, perhaps. The whole point of circumcision was to demonstrate you cannot do it. And when we come to faith in Christ, the glory of it is that God makes a greater circumcision, not just a foreskin, but the entirety of the flesh is cut away from the heart, the spirit, the soul, the core. And the old man is crucified and dies with Christ and a new creation is raised. And this new creation is not of the flesh. It is not of Gentile. It's not of Jew. It's born of God himself. And it has nothing to do with a physical heritage. It has everything to do with the spiritual heritage, which is Christ. And I hear Paul saying, of course, I want all physical Israel to be a part of God's new covenant. Of course I do. But being a Jew physically is not how it works. It works by grace through faith. And here's the conclusion. The ultimate conclusion we're getting to is that God did choose in his ultimate choice, just like he did with Pharaoh, to raise up Pharaoh for his name to be made known amongst the world. He chose and rose up, raised up, rose up the nation of Israel 
for his name to be made known. Even if that meant, and we'll get into this, Paul gets into it specifically, a partial hardening, just like Pharaoh. There was a hardening of Pharaoh so that the great mercy of God would be revealed to the world. There was a partial hardening of the Jew, of the Jewish nation, so that the mercy and the, for, and the forgiveness and the freedom and the new covenant would be made known around the world. And Paul says it's partial, not even the whole Jewish nation, because Paul says, you can read it, he says it here in chapters 9, 10, 11, I myself am a Jew, and many of the Christians are Jews. It's not a total, complete hardness of the entire Jewish nation, but a partial, so that God's mercy and forgiveness and grace would be seen for what it truly is, just like he did with Pharaoh. So the conclusion is the Jews came into it, not searching for it, but by I mean, the Gentiles came into it, not searching for it, but by faith. The Gentile, the Jews thought they could work for it, but they won't have it. For there's a stumbling block laid in Zion. He who believes in him will have great joy. It must be by faith. So what's our journey marker? Our journey marker is this. To prevail with God, you must depend on God. To prevail with God, you must depend on God. Israel, the name Israel, when God changed Jacob's name to Israel, Jacob means deceiver. It means one who deceives, he who deceives. And he changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which simply means prevailer with God, a prince of God, a prevailing prince with God. And here's the glory of what I, of what I think Paul is saying. True Israel, true prevailers with God, true princes, true sons of God are those who depend upon God. And it's been that way since the beginning. And God has raised up Pharaoh to let his great name be known. He's raised up the Jews to let his great name be known. That's God's choice to let his great name be known to the whole world. But the only way to prevail with God, the only way to be a true prince, son of God, the only way to be Israel is to depend on God. So where are you this morning? Where are you in this journey of life? Are you basing your, 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 your favor, God's favor with you, God's love towards you? Are you basing it on your track record of the last 12, 24, 48 hours? Are you basing your inheritance with God on, on your, how, how you've responded to stressful situations? Look, if we want to have a pity party about handling stressful situations, I'll go first. I mean, it's, it's been a rough couple of days dealing with some stressful situations. And if my union with God, my intimacy with God, my, God's favor towards me, his love towards me, his forgiveness of me, my new life. The, if anything between me and God is dependent upon my last 24, 48 hours, then man, look, I'm hosed. It, it's not going to be a good situation. But thank God it's not. It is on his promise. And what am I going to depend on? Am I depending on my ability or am I depending on his ability? And so we might be 2000 years later than this situation here, but man, look, we're struggling with the same exact things. Not so much in the sense of 
We don't have people running around saying in order to be really be a Christian, you, you not only have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to become a Jew. We, we don't have that running around. People are smarter than that. The devil's not trying that trick anymore. The trick he's trying now is if you really want to be okay with God, if you really want to be right with God, if you really want to be, you know, in with God, then you better confess all your sins. You better, you know, stop you know, this, you better start doing that. You better, you better, you better. And now the sense of God's holding my sins against me. If I don't do this and I better do these things in order for him to not hold my sins against me. And now based on my new track record, I'm okay with God because I stopped doing this and I started doing that. That's the same basic lie that Paul's fighting against vehemently in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians. Oh yeah. Ephesians, all of his letters, He's vehemently fighting against that because it's not the true gospel. The true gospel is that you have died. You have been buried with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You are a new creation. It is the predestined plan of God that your outer man come into the same conformity of Christ that your inner man already has. Here and now on earth, we'll see glimpses of that over time as we depend upon him, as the mind is renewed, as he makes an appeal to God, to our minds for who we truly are, there will be glimpses of that, but there will be an ultimate revelation, an ultimate conformity of, of the outer man to the true of our new heart inner man when we die. It will happen. It's predestined plan of God. Who will separate us from it? And now in the meantime, why in the world are we trying to measure our okayness with God based off our, our track record? In Paul's context back here, based on conversion to a certain people group or physical descendancy because it was never physical descendancy. It was about believing a promise. And God even raised up people to show about this promise. He raised up Pharaoh. He's raised up the Jews to show that it can't be about your physical adherence, your physical commitment, your obligation to some rules, laws, and commands. It's all about your eye being on the prize, which is Christ Jesus now in you. So hopefully that is, um, that resonates within us deeply as we walk through Romans. I encourage you, I'm going to pray here to close our time together, but I encourage you to, uh, to join us in this discussion time. You don't have to comment you don't even have to turn your camera on if you don't want to. I don't care. But I encourage you to click on the link. It's in the comments here. I also emailed it out. It's the meet.google.com slash WS thing. Click on that guy. We're going to start a comment. Uh, we're going to start a um, discussion group here in a few minutes. And once we do, um, we'll be able to talk this out more specifically. Uh, yes, I'll just, you know, perhaps the elephant in the room this passage, chapter 9, 10, and 11, is the, the, the linchpin. It's the, it's the foundation for what's called Reformed theology about God individually selecting some people for heaven and individually selecting some people from, for hell. And we'll talk about that in the, in the Google group if you want to. That's not the, I, I, I've chosen not to get into the, the nitty gritty on that because that to me is not at all what the passage is talking about. So why would I spend, you know, 20 minutes debunking a theory or a, a teaching a doctrine that isn't even factually based on this passage, what this passage is about when we should, and I did, and I hope, you know, it, it came across somewhat, just take the 
few minutes out of this entire week that we have to talk about the great glory of this passage, what it actually means, which is so much better than trying to talk about what it doesn't mean. But in the discussion group, if you have questions about that, let's talk about that because I think that's very important. Um, and and so, anyways, uh, I love you guys. Uh, we're going to pick up on, I think it's verse 19 next week where Paul continues uh, uh, explaining this is not this this inclusion of the Jews, this partial hardening of Israel. It's it's not it's nothing new. It's 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 been promised for a long, long time. In fact, for a long, long time, Moses talks about it. The Old Testament all throughout talks about it. Paul says, "So why in the world are we trying to convert Gentiles to Judaism when God promised from the beginning that it would they would be a part of this?" by faith anyways, apart from being a Jew. It's cool. Well, let's pray. And uh, again, I encourage you to join us. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to, um, yeah, that's right, Steve. It's true freedom. If you have any questions or comments or prayer requests, feel free to share them. Uh, but but I, I really hope that you can join us over in the discussion group. Uh, it'll just take a few minutes once I hang up this, this video to uh, get that one going. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us, your, the joy that you have in us and being with us and being in us. Not a joy that necessarily com that, that completes you by any stretch, but the joy of you revealing yourself to, your, to people, to humanity, who can receive who you are, receive your love for us and resonate that love and reciprocate that love. It's an amazing, amazing gift. And so, Father, we thank you for freely giving it to all. May more and more believe it. And I, and I echo Paul's um, passion of, if only, man, I, I long for this unceasing anguish in my heart that my own kinsmen would believe the truth man, that, that resonates within me. And I... I pray, Father, there will be a greater revelation, a greater understanding, a greater uh, uh, receptivity to the gospel day in and day out. And not a confused, mixed up gospel, but a Jesus plus nothing gospel. So, Father, we thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.